Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends. I'm Robert Evans, and this is once again Behind the Bastards, the show where we tell you everything you don't know about the very worst people in all of history. Now, my co-host today, who is going in cold in this tale of a bastard, is Abed Gaith. Abed, how are you doing, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. And you are with the podcast Gone Riffin on Starburns Audio. Yes, I am. Second season. That's right. And we're every Wednesday. You can find us uh, wherever you get podcasts. And you are also generally, you would say, a creative, a story consultant or whatnot in the uh, in the industry, so to speak. Yes, mostly for animation. I consult on my friends' uh, shows, and before their shows, Mm -hmm. they they have me come in and kind of like I just know every TV show. And yeah, animation. Like I'm really into media or a lot of stuff. So it's like I can be like, well, that's too much like this or maybe try that. And it's like helpful to people. And you are a big fan of today's big bastard. Oh, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, honestly, without question, one of the greatest directors. Yeah, there's no doubting that. Like yeah. there's no underplaying the guy's influence. His sheer um, uh, versatility is is really uh, amazing. Yeah, it's it's he's a, was a remarkable director with a remarkable impact. And unlike most of the bastards we talk about on our show, guys like Hitler, Stalin, Saddam, Steven Seagal, you know, these people are monsters who left the world with nothing but misery, pain, death, and uh, <laughs> a couple of mediocre 90s action movies. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock uh, is a much more complicated character to talk about when we're sort of parsing right. out his legacy. And so the question that that you and I have to answer today is in essence 
was it worth it? Was what we as a society got out of Hitchcock worth what the man did to some of the people around him? Uh, I mean, I hope so, but <laughs> I don't know exactly what we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah, and there probably won't be a clean answer, but you know, it helps to set up a question like that at the start of the podcast, even if we never address it again, and, and you know, hopefully the audience won't notice. I shouldn't mm. have brought that up. We <laughs> just rolled on through it, but right. now we're committed together. So, oh, yeah. We're locked in arm in arm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's tiptoe arm in arm to uh, uh, oblivion? I don't know. I, I'm, I, I should just move on to the story. Let's do it. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock was born on August 13th, 1899. So he's a 90s kid. Me? I'm an I'm a 80s, 90s kid. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm an 80s, 90s kid, but right. mostly 90s. Yeah, so already we've got a lot in common with oh, Hitchcock. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, his dad's side of the family was mostly a bunch of small business owners, and his mom's side of the family were laborers, you know? Mm-hmm. So he comes from a pretty working-class background. Yeah. Uh, Cockney background. So yes. like, yeah. Uh, Alfred's dad, William, moved the family into the lucrative grocery store-owning trade when he was just a baby. Uh, the family lived on premises at the Greens Grocers they worked at, and in general seemed to have lived ideal lives as quiet, productive subjects of the crown. You know, pretty pretty normal, you know, turn-of-the-century British family. Yeah. So while family circumstances were comfortable enough, Father William was a strict disciplinarian. Alfred was the youngest of three children, and his dad seems to have singled him out for a particular ire. Throughout his life, Hitchcock was fond of relating this story. And I'm going to quote Alfred here. Hmm. When I was no more than six years of age, I did something that my father considered worthy of reprimand. He sent me to the local police station with a note. The officer on duty read it and locked me in a jail cell for five minutes, saying, This is what we do to naughty boys. I have, ever since, gone to any lengths to avoid arrest and confinement. To you young people, my message is, stay out of jail. Now, it's debatable as to whether or not that story is true. I do want to believe that there was a time when you could just whimsically send your kid to the police station and right. have him locked up for a couple of minutes. Uh, my dad almost did it to me when he caught me with pot. Really? <laughs> he, he, he threatened to call the police. Oh. Yeah, so I've been there. But that's a little dare. Like, now, I, nowadays, I don't think most parents would do that because you'd no. be like, well, I mean, cops shoot people sometimes. Oh, well, my dad was like a fanatical Muslim, so. Yeah. Yeah, he Ooh. was against any kind of drugs. And that's a complicated police relationship there, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Hitchcock's family would not have had that kind of, you know, it was, it was the 1890s. You know, right. They were all British and, and, and very uh, cockney Caucasians. Yeah, yeah and they yeah. probably trusted the police yeah. more than we do yeah. now. It was a different era. Yeah. Although this does seem to have given Hitchcock kind of a lifetime hatred of uh, police officers and all authority figures, which is oh, definitely— Oh, we share that yeah. in common, yeah. Yes, ditto, ditto. Uh, and it's also a, th- a pretty ever-present theme in his work. You know, the police generally— are not portrayed as particularly on the ball in Hitchcock films. In no, in a way, they represent sort of like an opposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems to have been his very much attitude. He stated in a number of interviews, actually, that it must be said to my credit that I never wanted to be a policeman, which is like the polite 1950s equivalent of having ACAB tattooed or stuck on the back of your shirt or something. <laughs> like he, he he definitely had a little bit of that punk attitude going in. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Donald Spotto, who wrote the biography The Dark Side of Genius, notes that it's impossible to confirm or deny Hitchcock's story about being locked in a cell for five minutes. Whatever the case, it's telling that he would go back to this story repeatedly in interviews. It definitely says something about him as a person. Uh, Hitchcock grew up into an anxious child. He did not deal well with being left alone and was prone to flights of wild paranoia. Quote, I remember when I was five or six, it was a Sunday evening, the only time my parents did not have to work. They put me to bed and went to Hyde Park for a stroll. They were sure I would be asleep until their return. But I woke up, called out, and no one answered. Nothing but night all around me. Shaking, I got up, wandered around the empty, dark house, and, finally arriving in the kitchen, found a piece of cold meat that I ate while drying my tears. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a rough story. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, and young... so far I'm with him. Yeah, so far I'm with him. He's yeah. not, nothing, nothing like he's just a little kid at this right, point. Right, he's um, struggling. He's struggling, and he uh, he begins to binge eat. Uh, and apparently his favorite foods were fried fish and bacon, which checks out with the British stuff. Very British. Okay, that is British. Yeah, a lot yeah. of fried fish, a lot of bacon. Uh, he later recalled that his goal with this was to build what he described as an armor of fat to protect him from the world. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Yeah, this kind of nineties. It's kind of yeah, making it your own. Yeah. Um, as a young man, Hitchcock's favorite hobby involved studying the timetables of the brand new electronic trains that had just come to London. Oh. Uh, he was seven years old when the London area got its first electronic tram, and this was apparently something of like a local hobby at the time, is mm-hmm. just obsessing over train schedules and like betting how late or early a train would be. Wow. It was a boring time. <laughs> like 1907, there's not a He's lot to do. studying train schedules. <laughs> it's that or Dickens. Well, like, it's kind of like model building now. Yeah. Right? yeah. I feel like this is the 1906 version, like the people who would have been doing that in 1906 grew up reading Star Wars extended universe novels in the 1990s. Oh, like, I did. Yeah, yeah, same yeah, here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, heir that, to the yeah. Empire, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's something cool and new and futuristic, so you obsess over it for a while. Well, because we, we didn't get Star Wars sequels, so that was the closest yeah, we got. that was the closest we got. It was our electronic train schedules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I was made fun of. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I would say it made me a stronger person, but it made oh, me bitter. Yeah. Well, it did make me bitter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess well, maybe he didn't take shit for the electronic train thing. That might have just been so cool at the time. But he gonna, was probably ahead of the curve. He was probably ahead of the curve. Yeah. That I is think the he influenced a couple of train mm-hmm. hobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> Hitchcock went to high school, or primary school, I guess they call it, uh, at St. Ignatius, which was a Catholic school that took a traditionally and expectedly Catholic attitude towards discipline. Kids were whipped on their knuckles for being bad, but discipline there was not the sort of ad hoc affair that it's usually portrayed as being in like movies about Catholic schools. Kids would be sentenced by their teachers for particular acts of misbehavior, and they'd have to schedule time to go get whipped by their school's disciplinarian. I actually grew up in a school like this. You did? Um, yeah, my elementary school in Oklahoma had corporal punishment, and it was oh, all wow. your teachers would sentence you, but the principal had to do all of the paddling. So was it that be, movie, is it Taps? I don't know. Were they in the military school and they take over? Oh shit! No, I haven't seen that. I don't know if it's taps. It's like it's it's something, but it's it's the similar thing where the kids are are whipped and then one day they sort of like overrule the teachers. Well, we didn't ever overthrow our teachers. Uh, It was more like you'd schedule a thing with the principal and he'd hit you in the butt like five times with a paddle and then you sign the paddle. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so I don't know. Hitchcock and I had this in common. Um, It wasn't very scary at our school. It was almost more of a joke. Uh, Okay. But Hitchcock. This seemed to really leave an impact on him, and it oh, seemed to be something that he related to with horror. And it almost seems like, uh, well, how old was he again? Uh, he would have been, you know, twelve, thirteen. When yeah, he that's, this. Hor- that's yeah, that's really scary. And it seems like what really had an impact on him was the sort of inevitable nature of once you get sentenced, like you have to go schedule the time. It doesn't happen immediately, so you've just got this dread approaching, oh. which is again something that's really present in his movies. Yeah, this, like, like he's the master of suspense. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, it seems like you can kind of see these little bits of him getting programmed as he's young by sort of these experiences. Well, one he's of his having. best methods in film in his filmmaking is where the audience knows something's coming mm-hmm. but the main character doesn't yeah and he so likes in a to, way that's similar yeah he likes to torment you with it. Right, he right, learned that right and yeah here's what he said about it later 
Uh, quote, the method of punishment, of course, was highly dramatic because the form master would tell the pupil of his wrongdoing and the pupil would have to go before the disciplining priest. It was left to the pupil to decide when he would go for the punishment, and of course he would keep putting it off. And then at the end of the day, he would go to a special room where there would be a priest or a lay brother who would administer the punishment, like in a minor way, going for execution. I think it was a bad thing. It was not like they give the boys a cane in other schools. This was a rubber strap. If by chance you had gone as bad as to be sentenced to, shall we say, 12, you would have to spread it over two days because each hand could only take three strokes as it became numb Ooh, so see, it's i yeah. was i was actually hit by my mom not my dad and she would do that where she would count during mm. the day how many hits i would get oh wow yeah and if i was really bad she'd use like a like a spatula yeah and that's but this was on my my bum yeah but that's like <laughs> horrifying like that knowledge that, that knowledge it's like, that like you got yeah. uh, i think the most was 17 Oof. were coming my way and yeah i yeah. can relate there it seems like it was 12 for him but like yeah that's that clearly left an impact on this guy too this yeah, idea that yeah. like it is terrifying yeah yeah exactly and makes you hate your mother yeah well <laughs> yeah exactly uh, I don't think Hitchcock grew up super fond of uh, authority figures, partly as a result of this and as a result of his, yeah. So of course. We're, we're seeing the man sort of come together here as a child. Spato also, his biographer, also thinks that this had a major impact on the content of his movies. Hitchcock was described at the time by other kids in his primary school as being different from the beginning. One of his schoolmates later described him as a lonely fat boy who smiled and looked at you as if he could see straight through you. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so he's... I mean, that's a movie right there. That is, yeah. He sounds like he's a little bit children of the corn or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. about to say, yeah. it's kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Mr. and Mrs. Hitchcock called their son Fred. Uh, he hated this name. He also hated his nickname, Cocky which he received during his time in Catholic school. What well, with the news today, when you hear that he got nicknamed Cocky at Catholic school, it is natural to assume the worst. But actually, it's a little bit less messed up than it might otherwise be. I don't really understand where Cocky came from this nickname, so I'm going to read that the story a classmate gave his biographer about how he got his nickname Cocky. Hitchcock became a notorious purloiner of eggs from the priest's henhouse on the forbidden side of the Presbytery Garden. He loved to steal the eggs and throw them on the windows of the Jesuit residence. When an angry priest ran out, demanding to know who had dirtied the glass, Cocky offered an innocent look, glanced at the sky, shrugged, and said, I don't know, Father. It looks like the birds have been flying overhead. <laughs> That's how he got the nickname, even to junior boys, of Cocky. Now, this egg story is particularly interesting to me in light of another Hitchcock quote I found in an article on The Telegraph. Yeah. Quote, I'm frightened of eggs. Worse than frightened. They revolt me. That white round thing without any holes. Have you ever seen anything more revolting than an egg yolk breaking and spilling its yellow liquid? Blood is jolly, red, but egg yolk is yellow, revolting. I've never tasted it. Oh, that's cool. That's so weird. That is like the coolest. That's so weird. But it's so cool. It's like kind of like I've never heard anyone like say that about an egg yeah. it blows my mind actually he definitely but has see, that's what yeah. makes him interesting is his perspective is so strange yeah you know like right there you can see it he's clearly coming at the world from a different angle than everybody else's mm -hmm. even his lie about like a normal kid would lie like somebody else was throwing eggs at the priest's house yeah. he's like no 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 the birds were flying overhead and they <laughs> blaming it on the birds even at like age 12 he, he didn't like birds back then no no never liked birds i agree I with i kind of don't that. trust him either because mm -mm. no, you can't know what, you don't know what they're saying no and they're definitely planning something oh all that chirping there's yeah. like a there's like a plot he tried to warn us now hitchcock preferred to use his own chosen nickname hitch uh and he preferred that to cocky or fred or tragically fredcock uh Fred Cock? that would have been what i would have picked fredcock <laughs> But he preferred Hitch. Hitch was an odd kid, and from the beginning, he was insecure about his weight. But if you're picturing young Hitchcock as a troubled, bullied loner, well, that might not 
quite be fair. Primary school seems to be where Hitch first ignited his love of pranking people. And he did this in a way that I think was definitely bullying. I'm going to read a quote now from The Dark Side of Genius. In the early afternoon, between a lecture class and a quiet study time, the boys were free to gather in the schoolyard near the church. Gould, who was one of his classmates, then nine, was suddenly yanked away from his peers by Hitchcock and an accomplice and dragged off to another forbidden area, the basement boiler room of the school. Before he could cry out or struggle, not much use in any case against two bigger boys, Gould was bound hand and foot. Once he was immobilized, he was prey to a carefully planned psychological torture that could have ended disastrously. His trousers were pulled down and Hitchcock quickly stepped behind him. There was the sound of a scratching noise and the two bullies raced up the stairs. Young Gould must have thought he was attacked by a firing squad. At once the sound of gunfire exploded, but it was a string of firecrackers that had been pinned to his underwear and ignited. It was a good job I wasn't burned, Gould remembered. I stood there shaking and crying for I don't know how long until someone finally found me and set me free. Of course I was too frightened to tell anyone who had done it. I was afraid of recrimination, and they knew it. I guess you could say Alfred Hitchcock had a sense of the macabre even at school. Jesus. Yeah, that's kind of going a little far, right? I mean, I think <laughs> I think I used to uh, join in with the popular kids teasing. We all kids. did some shit we're not we proud did, of. Yeah, yeah. But nothing that like just horrific. Like tying a kid up and pinning firecrackers to his underpants yeah, like, is wow. that's a step. That's nuts. That's a step beyond. Acceptable. I mean, like if anything's <laughs> going to get you into film school, yeah, you can tell that story and be like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> If this was a movie, Gould would have been the one who became a great director. But <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't it funny? One of the tormentors yeah. became the director. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're going to be a heart, like, I'm going to bet Eli Roth was pretty rough to be in high school with. <laughs> oh, pro- and David Lynch. Can and you David- imagine? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Him torturing insects. We should see if there's some kids missing from David Lynch's uh, elementary school. That should be your next guy <laughs> to go after. <laughs> Now, as a teenager, Alfred Hitchcock grew enthralled with crime literature, uh, starting with the works of Arthur Conan Doyle and moving on to what were essentially early true crime books, accounts of actual criminal cases and investigations. Spotto says uh, Hitchcock came to think of the murderers he studied as his heroes rather than their victims or the people who caught them. When he did focus on details of the victim's experience, the thing that interested him most was how much they'd suffered. Alfred left school in 1913 when he was 14, and uh, he spent the next seven years doing a mix of odd jobs, artistic experimentation, and occasional rough attempts at some kind of secondary education. He attended many plays and grew enthralled by the young art of filmmaking, but he had no time at the moment to consider that as a career option. On December 12th, his dad died. Hitchcock was only 15 and suddenly found himself caretaker to a very demanding mother. Mm. Quote, my mother- Psycho. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. My mother was meticulous about our home and her person. She never left the house without presenting herself at her best. Her posture, her demeanor, her dress, her shoes, perfectly polished. A well-kept handbag, inside as well as outside, and gloves whenever possible. Now, while he was still at school, and as a young man, Hitchcock's mother expected him to come by her bedside every evening and describe in excruciating detail what he'd done that day. When he was married, his mom accompanied him and his wife on vacations from the time they got married up until her death. Wow. Now, unfortunately, there's not as much detail on their relationship as I'd like, or at least I was not able to find it. But every detail I was able to find makes it seem like it's a little bit weird. Yeah. She was a bit of a demanding lady. Right. Yeah. Well, especially since he, he kind of took over for his dad. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Almost like you're my new husband. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's like that creepy thing happening. Well, and it's it's kind of what you have happening at uh, in Psycho where, you know, they run this uh, – uh, this. I mean, she. I don't think he's – Bates is taking well because okay, his dad gets murdered, right? In Psycho, I I don't remember that uh, detail, but I I it is sort of a controlling mother, yeah, and a sort of like 
son that has to like manage do... the business. Yes, and yeah. he's almost like the face. Yeah, while she just hides. Yeah, and while she just hides, and it's one of those things where like it is easy if you're like going back into someone's life after the point and trying to like come up with things that might have inspired their art to pick on stuff like this. But yeah. at the same time, like you really do see some of this coming together, even in that line that he was always more sympathetic to murderers because Psycho is very much Norman's yeah, story. Yeah, it's, it's from Norman's uh, yeah. side of things. But I was also, I, I think in the movie, I don't think they even mentioned the father. Yeah, I, I don't. You know, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Right, either. right, it's right. It's been a, because, long, a while since I've seen it. But yeah, I mean, I don't they're think definitely alone. Yeah, yeah, they're both alone. Yeah, and it, 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 it does seem like he had that kind of, not obviously to that extent, because Hitchcock very much lived his own life after a while, but mm-hmm. there's some there's some weirdness going on there. Was she with him all the way with, with Alma, with his first wife? Yeah, yeah, with okay. Alma. Yeah, okay. that's, was, uh, yeah, that was that relationship. So, uh, well, the family business provided some revenue, Hitchcock was forced to get a regular job in order to do his part in taking care of his mother, which seemed to be most of the part. Like, at least the stories I've read really emphasize Hitchcock was the one taking care of them, even though he was the youngest. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1915, he found a gig at the Henley Telegraph and Cable Company. Uh, he appears to have instantly impressed his supervisor and was transferred to the advertising department. So clearly somebody recognizes this kid ought to be doing something that, like, is presenting our business to people. Like, he recognized this guy's got a creative gift. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it was immediately obvious to the people. Uh, he he had the with. eye. He had the eye. So Hitchcock spent most of his time at the Henley Telegraph and Cable Company drawing, laying out ad brochures, and he focused mostly on visual presentation, how to deliver a message to an audience in the most impactful way. One of his first jobs was to make an ad to convince churches and other institutions to install electrical lights. Quote from Hitchcock. I'd write church lighting on the cover of a brochure and then draw two candles, and there would be darkness all around, suggesting that church lighting by candles alone won't be enough to light any surface. So he's already playing with light. He's already, like, we can see the evolution of this thing that's going to go into being his great talent. So Hitchcock and his family weathered the Great War better than most families in England. He worked hard, and he moved up the ranks of the ad world. By the time he was 20, he was still a virgin and, by his own description, an uncommonly attractive young man. But he was ambitious and talented, and when he saw that an American film company was about to open a studio in England, he knew he had to be a part of it. Quote, he quickly found out what film they were planning, and with the assistance of Henley's advertising manager, who helped him arrange a portfolio and with whom he agreed to split any fee, he went along to the Islington offices. Uh, so Hitchcock presents his portfolio, and this executive takes, like, he's, he's just got all these sketches that he's drawn of Londoners, like, people around the city, and they're really, they're described as being grotesque. The, yeah. It doesn't survive, but Hitchcock had just spent days drawing pictures of, like, people traveling through public transit in London. Okay. And he presents them to this advertising manager at this film company, and the guy hires him like that. Yeah. It's like, you've got whatever kind of eye it is that we need. You know, film's a new medium at this point, but... Right, right. Silent film is just starting. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, this guy's got what they're looking for. So they they bring him on, and now Hitchcock is in the film industry. Hmm. So uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about what else happens in in Hitchcock's early film career. We're going to talk about how his uh, love of pranks came to sort of dominate his early career. And uh, <laughs> But first, we're going to talk about... Ads. Yay! Do you like ads, Abed? Uh, you know what? I'm a fan of 80s commercials. Oh, okay. Well, do you want to advertise for a product from the 80s for free before we break for ads? Uh, yeah. Um, Crossfire. It's an excellent game. Oh, yeah. Crossfire. And, that uh, had a great commercial. Dude, yeah. Right? And I was at Target not too long ago, and they brought it back. Oh, shit. Well, I'm going to advertise Lawn Dart since we're doing 80s oh, cool. stuff. Yeah, Lawn Darts. I remember that commercial. Yeah. Take a kid's eye out. Yeah. Fuck it. <laughs> too many eyes in the world today. All right. 
ads. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Oh, 
great ads. Really good <laughs> ads. Almost as good as Lawn Darts. Right. But, I mean, Lawn Dart people. I even remember the Crossfire song. Crossfire. You'll get caught up in the crossfire. 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 Oh, the kid man. Goes, yeah! At the end. Crossfire people. We are accepting sponsors. <laughs> if you want to be the official game of terrible I should have bought it. Yeah. I'm such an idiot. We're all fools for not buying Crossfire. It'd be worth millions today. I know. Speaking of millions, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, so when we last left him off, he's just uh, he's just kicked off his uh, his his career, gotten hired with like an American film company that had opened a studio in England. So he works with them on three movies, helps to produce them. He works a bunch of different jobs. He's assistant director, art director, script supervisor, and he basically gets a chance to learn the fundamentals of filmmaking on several different projects. Um, I'm not going to go into detail on the individual movies because they were like weird little early British films and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, it's not Hitchcock's vision or anything. Right, like that, right, but right. He's, he's getting an eye for the details. Yeah. So uh, what's important for our story is that while he was working on the third of these films, titled The Prude's Fall, Alfred Hitchcock found himself a lady. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look uh, at you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I uh, mean him. Yeah, look at him. Alma Reveille, uh, I think Reveille, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was a freelance editor with the company, and apparently 1921 Alfred Hitchcock's way of flirting was to completely ignore her, even when she was right next to him, and never <laughs> so much as speak no, to her. He uh, snubbed her. Yeah, he snubbed her. He, yeah. like, refused to acknowledge her existence for, like, months and months well, and see, months. and that worked because back then I don't think anyone did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you— If, if you, you liked a lady, you would kind of serenade her. Yeah. I think yeah, no one had tried. Uh, uh, this is almost like negging. So he's yeah, like, he's, yeah. he's really he's, he's a really pioneer, a pioneer of, of pickup artistry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he ignored her for months and months and months until one night he gave her a call at home. Is that Miss Reveille? This is Alfred Hitchcock. I have been appointed assistant director for a new film. I wonder if you would accept a position as cutter on the picture, which is what he, they used to call editors because right. you were physically cutting You're the phys- film. Yeah. Once she took the job and they began working more closely together, he explained to her that he was very shy when it came to women, but he still more or less ignored her. It turned out that this is because he viewed her position, editing, as higher than his own. And, quote, it was unthinkable for a British male to admit that a woman has a more important job than his. And I waited until I had the higher position, assistant director. So he doesn't want to hit on this girl where she's got a better job than he does. Oh, boy. Yeah, so it's like a power thing. We're, we're there. starting to get into the sketchiness now. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Of, although, I mean, it's hard to say if that's that weird at the time. Well, because at the time, yeah. men were, you know, that was the common yeah. thinking, I guess. Yeah, so he, this still may be him more in line with, like, you know, the sort of values at the time. Yeah. Uh, he proposed to her while they were on board a ship from Germany to England in the middle of a dreadful storm at sea. Uh, so it was a very, very romantic and dramatic proposal. On a ship, so, wow. Yeah, she's sick and everything. They got engaged in 1921, but they didn't get married until 1926. Why? Because Hitchcock didn't want to get married until he had directed three feature films. Now, here's how he described it. <laughs> it's an odd it. rule. Well, here's his explanation for why he, he had this rule. I had wanted to become first a film director and second Alma's husband, not in the order of emotional preference, to be sure, but because I felt the bargaining power implicit in the first was necessary in obtaining the second. Jeez. <laughs> it's a little weird. It's not enough to for her to like him. You know, yeah. He's got to like add to the you got to have pile. some bargaining power. Yeah, in yeah. Every relationship. She must have been that. like hard to win over. Yeah, it seems like it, because she had a pretty good career of her own going at the time. I guess I, he wanted to, like, outmatch her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it does seem like, because she worked with him for his whole career. They were collaborators. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like she kind of gave up having, like, her own independent career in order to sort of make yeah. his better. Uh, being a fan of his films, I would say that a lot of her 
collaboration with him, it's like some of the best. Yeah. He's done, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Hitchcock would direct something like 24 British films. Uh, he grew well-known in the industry as an American-style European director. Yeah. So he's famous for directing like an American when Europeans are, you know, a couple of years behind Americans. And yeah, and he was like one of the first yeah. to come out strong. Yeah. Now, among his colleagues, he grew well-known as a dick who played unbelievably aggressive pranks. Uh, Spotto, his biographer, suspects his motivation for these vicious pranks came from him not being where he wanted to be yet in his career and basically trying to gain control in his personal life by fucking with people. Uh, let's run through several, a lot really, of his greatest hits. <laughs> At one point, he was given an assistant who, in his opinion, overdressed. This made Hitch feel like he had to take the young man down a peg. He asked why the fellow always wore such nice clothing, and the man said that it was a holdover from his time in the Royal Navy during World War I. He'd just sort of been trained to always dress well. That night, Hitchcock asked the young man to come with him on a trip across the Thames. He made certain that the boat they took was uncovered so that, when it rained, it would drench his young assistant and fuck up his nice outfit, ruining much of it permanently. <laughs> that's young, funny. That's, that part's funny. It, start, it starts funny. Yeah. Young Alfred seemed to have a peculiar hatred of other people having nice things, or at least doing what he saw as bragging about it. On another instance, after one of his cameramen talked about having an all-new, all-electric kitchen, Hitchcock had two tons of coal dropped in front of the man's door. <laughs> <laughs> Still, he's, it's funny. It's funny, it, but you, you see, like, the proportions are off. T uh, yeah, two tons of coal. It's almost like he went to the extreme yeah, that with is his pranking. The, the footprint of a large truck worth of piles of coal. Yeah, he's kind yeah. of like the original uh, jackass. Yeah, yeah, you know? he's, he's got a little bit of that going on. So he considered these to be moral lessons, but they seem to lack any sense of proportion. Spato's depiction of his life makes that very clear. Other Hitchcockian mischief, however, inflicted some real inconvenience or embarrassment on the victims for no particular reason. A featured actress received 400 smoked herring for a birthday present and had the unpleasant task of deciding how to dispose of what was left after two days living with an all-pervasive odor. After shooting the farmer's wife, Hitchcock gave a reception for the cast and crew, about 40 people in all, but the supper was served in the smallest room of a West End restaurant, where Hitchcock brought in aspiring actors as waiters, one to each guest, and instructed them to serve with appalling rudeness and incivility. Hmm. So, just to get what he wanted on film. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I think just to this was after it was done filming. Oh um, wow. Yeah. I think this was like uh, like it was a reception for the cast and crew. So he. Just oh, hired, so it was, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just weird. That is weird. It does like it. It it starts like kind of making sense, but he clearly seems to just have been compelled to do this and to set up these kind of dramatic scenes to see how people would react. You know, because I would watch him being interviewed, and he was always really funny. You know, like very witty mm -hmm. and kind of like I was shocked at how hilarious he, he could yeah. be. But I guess like he had a darker kind of sense of humor. He, he did have a darker kind of sense. Um, I think he would defend it by saying he was trying to teach lessons to people. And he sort of did that in the same way that he would have to a character in a movie. Like he, he did that like just in his actual life. Here's a quote from Alfred himself on one of his practical jokes. Quote, The best practical joke I ever played was at a London hotel where I gave a dinner party for Gertrude Lawrence. I always thought blue was such a pretty color, but none of the food we eat is blue. So at this party, <laughs> all the food was blue. I had the soup dyed blue, the trout, the peaches, the ice cream. How would the guests react? How far would manners and propriety take them? So that he just wants to see, he wants to tweak people to see what they yeah, do. Yeah, he's a, yeah. Which is, that makes very much sense, like yeah. knowing his see, movies. These days he would get his own show. Yeah, and, and it would be <laughs> probably really good. He would be Nathan for you right now. Yeah, he yeah, would be yeah, the yeah. modern Nathan for you. <laughs> yeah. or, or if, you know, previous, he would be like, uh, you know, what's that show with uh, Aston Kutcher? Oh, oh, Punked, Punked right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It is that kind of thing. Right. Um, 
Now, I, I do want to note that like these weren't all people who had done something to offend him. He also fucked with his friends this way. Uh, Sir Gerald Dumarier, uh, who was a prominent actor at the time, was a friend of Hitchcock's. Uh, one day he came into his dressing room after a performance to find a live adult horse sitting and presumably shitting in his dressing room. <laughs> A few weeks. I mean, I'm entertained with these. <laughs> yeah, they're they're funny so far. Yeah. A few weeks later, Hitchcock invited Sir Gerard to a costume party and told him to dress in a ridiculous getup. So Sir Gerard shows up at this party with his face painted and dressed as a Scotsman. Uh, as you probably guessed, the party was really a black tie affair, not a costume party, and Sir Gerald left immediately, feeling very <laughs> embarrassed. Now, again. A little whimsical, fun. Yeah. Elsie uh, yeah. Randolph was an actress who worked with Hitchcock on a number of t- uh, films. Uh, she came to trust him and at one point confided in him that she was absolutely terrified of fire. As you might guess, Alfred. Oh, this is Hitch- where it gets dark. This is <laughs> this is where things take a turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm seeing the turn. Yeah, it, as you might guess, Alfred Hitchcock was basically the worst person you could ever tell about a fear. Oh God. Uh, yeah. Don't don't confide in See, Hitchcock that's on her. if you have a fear. But a little bit, right? Because <laughs> if word got around at what he does. But know? here's here's what he does. He waits until she goes into a telephone box, like the TARDIS, you know, like one of those, like that's that's yeah, what yeah, they did yeah. back then. The ones that you can't yeah. get out of. So once she's in it, he locks it from the outside and starts pumping smoke into the box in order oh to hold hilariously God. convince her she's about to burn to death. Wow. Isn't that a fun? Isn't that, that is funny? fun. I, lo- I love hoot. smoke-filled oh. telephone boxes. Oh, and man, when you can't get out and you're I know. trapped and you it, don't know that it's a joke, <laughs> you just think you're going to die? Oh, that is that is <laughs> a joy. That's better than Disneyland. Yeah, it's better than Disneyland. Oh, God, I love a fake burning to death. It's just... <laughs> There's no better way to get a good laugh mm-hmm. out of somebody. It's my favorite thing about Disney World when you're on the uh, uh, Space Mountain and then it stops and it fills with smoke and you're, you're yeah. strapped in it. Like, right. that's why everyone loves Space Mountain. I know. Because you think you're going to die. And the conductor's <laughs> like, just kidding! <laughs> uh, so, Hitchcock's usual targets were people he worked with. Uh, generally, people who worked under him and thus could not really do anything about it if they'd wanted to. He often spent tremendous amounts of money just to screw with people. For one example, one Christmas, he bought the entire crew of the movie he was working on enormous pieces of furniture. Sounds nice, right? Sounds like a fancy gift. But beforehand, he went to the effort of checking out each of their homes individually to make sure none of them lived in houses that would fit the gifts he was buying. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Who does that? Oh, man. Who spends thousands of dollars just wow. to do that. Oh, your house is too small for that. I mean, his pranks are almost as brilliant as his movies. Yeah, yeah, he's like they, they're not lazy pranks. No, I'll that's that that's him. that's very interesting. We're going to keep going. There's a lot more pranks. Oh man. <clears throat> Now, from what I can tell, it seems like Hitchcock spent a lot of the money he made, especially during the early part of his career really taking off, playing increasingly aggressive pranks. He had custom whoopee cushion sofa cushions made for his home furniture, which he would put out in lieu of regular cushions whenever he had a guest that he thought was too fancy. Hitchcock would then spend the entire night giving that person shit for farting at his party. <laughs> he once sent a series of gifts and heated love notes to a married woman he knew. New. Uh, now, this woman was one member of a couple who hosted a radio show together. He did not like their radio show, and so Hitchcock decided to ruin their relationship. Quote, Jeez. I wanted to see what this would do to the husband. At one point, she ran after the driver who'd brought a gift to try and figure out who the sender was. And finally, the husband said, on the air one day, I can't go on with the show. She's run out into the street. So I had the pleasure of breaking up that show. So he just like... Now, that's, like, that's kind of messed up. a relationship. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> a little too far there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was not uncommon for Hitchcock pranks to veer into abusive territory. Some of them were straight-up acts of torture. One time, during the production of a film Hitchcock found boring, he bet one of his crew members a full week's salary if the man could spend the night chained to a camera in the empty, darkened studio. So he handcuffs this guy inside and leaves him with a bottle of brandy, which he said was to ensure a quick and deep sleep. Abed, you want to you wanna take a guess at what the prank was here? Oh, uh, gosh. I mean, who knows? That furniture thing still is still throwing me. The fur- well, this actually, there's a little bit of relation to that. Yeah. Uh, he drugged the brandy with powerful laxatives, causing the man to shit himself uncontrollably the entire night. Wow, I should have predicted that. Yeah, yeah. That, he, that he poisoned the, somebody. The fart jokes were a yeah. clue. The rest of the crew found their coworker the next morning weeping, ashamed, badly dehydrated, and surrounded by a wide pool of his own diarrhea in the middle of the room. Oh, gross. Yeah, that's that's really bad. Oh man, <laughs> that's not like a, a fun time happy prank. That's not like oh, you got the couch is too big. Uh, he <laughs> shat himself for nine hours. Oh, nine hours, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh boy. Yeah. Here's how the dark side of genius tried to make sense of this horrific behavior. To make others feel childish and dependent, this seemed to be part of his goal. He apparently considered most people a threat. They were better looking, more intelligent, better educated, more socially acceptable than himself. And by reducing them to a sudden discomfort, perhaps he felt he was bringing them to the level on which he always lived. By thus subjugating those he resented, for whatever reason and on whatever level of consciousness, by submitting them to varying degrees of humiliation and danger, he was not only controlling them, he was in fact exteriorizing his own deepest fears, fears that would later be exteriorized chiefly on the screen, where he could subject vast numbers of people to crisis and dread. Wow. That's how Spotto concludes all this, and it, you know, he makes a good case for it. I, I think I read some of that book because I was staying at a friend's house, and it was on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And um, because at the time, I was like, I've always been a fan, but I remember just pulling it off the shelf and reading a couple chapters. And yeah. It's a good book. It's a good book. It's a good book. There's a lot of a lot of this is in there. There's a, a lot of different stories of his pranks that kind of I combed from a number of different locations. Yeah. Uh, the only person I've read about who managed to turn the tables on Hitchcock was Alfred Room, who was a, an assistant cameraman on one of his productions. Did um, Was he? Uh, oh, no, I'm thinking of a different Room. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, after being repeatedly pranked by the director, Room put a smoke bomb under Hitch's car. Quote, you never saw a fat man get out of a car quicker. Hitch never tried anything on me again. He respected you if you hit back. If you didn't, he'd have another go. So this is Room's sort of how to deal with Hitchcock. Yeah, he's got to swing yeah. back well, at him. that's awesome because it's like someone figured it out. Yeah, someone figured it out. And a few people seem to have figured it out over yeah, the course yeah. of his career. And his name was Alfred also. Mm, yeah, it was. Yeah, another Alfred. Uh, now, no one at the time seemed to think Hitchcock's hobby of sometimes literally torturing people was worth talking much about. He was rarely interviewed about it, and then only near the end of his life. In one 1972 interview, he insisted his pranks were not meant to harm or denigrate their victims. So that would be Hitchcock's attitude. Well, but shitting for nine hours, that's kind of harmful. That seems harmful and denigrating. Yeah, that can't be good for your colon. Poisoning someone's <laughs> alcohol with laxative seems harmful and, right, and perhaps right. denigrating. I mean, I bet you that guy had problems later in life. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, how could you continue working on that thing? Your coworkers all find you chained to a thing covered in shit, like after, like surrounded by a pile of your own sick. That's oh. it's dark, man. And this all counts as light compared to what we are slowly building towards. Well, I know a couple things. So yeah. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Hitchcock finally crossed over from Euro cinema to Hollywood in 1939. He hit his peak in the 1950s with a string of legendary hits like Dial M for Murder, To Catch a Thief. Vertigo, and of course, North by Northwest. Uh, interesting side note. Vertigo, I want to say, Rear Window, um, Rope, 
and there's one more, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. They were not like widely released or seen really uh, like until the 80s. Really? Because they that. came out in the theaters but were just like brief. Wow. So people hadn't seen them until the 80s. Like 84, they were re-released. So I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that. So that's when he like got, uh, I guess, beloved. But it was like he was he became well known at this point. So he was still he was, like he yeah. was kind of well known. And um, I mean, those movies like made him like an icon. Yeah. But I think Psycho is what, what the yeah. biggest breakthrough. Yeah. yeah, and that's what we're we're building up. Yeah. Toward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're getting up towards. So he continues pranking throughout all these years, and his increasing wealth allows him to do things like buy gigantic furniture for dozens of people just to screw with them. So like that's the you know, it, well, we should also say. Um, thanks to Selznick, he was brought over. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, Rebecca was his first um, American film. Excellent movie. It's on Criterion. I highly recommend watching mm-hmm. it. It's brilliant. Selznick was like already a fan, so he brought him over to make that film. Oh, okay, awesome. And um, that's kind of his intro into American cinema. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean, he he did very well in American cinema. Right. Now, there's, there's women are often... A focus in Hitchcock's films, often like major Blondes. characters in it, blondes in particular. And um, the, the Guardian described women in Hitchcock movies as, quote, outwardly immaculate but full of treachery and weakness. Hmm. Um, which, you know, at least from the, the Hitchcock movies, I know that seems to be uh, an accurate description of a lot of the female characters. that he'll A little have. bit. Yeah. And I, it's interesting to me, the outwardly immaculate, because they are always blonde. They're always very put together, at least at the start of the films. And we see them sort of get degraded and picked apart. And whatnot Yeah, Rebecca the... is all about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that poor woman is like t- taken to bits at the end of the movie. And we his description of his mother is that she was always very put together. You know, she would never leave the house without gloves and he makes like made a big point of that whenever he talked about her. So that's interesting to me that mm-hmm. like that is that is like his starting point with any female character is like she hits that point where you know it's very much similar to how he describes his mother. It's always going out when she's very properly dressed and attired and whatnot. Yeah. I find that interesting. Right. Now, uh, his deep need for control was expressed in more and more extravagant ways as his profile grew and his brilliance was recognized by a grateful, drooling, loving Hollywood. Uh, according to the Telegraph, quote, he cared so deeply about protecting his art, he spared no expense making sure they were viewed in the correct manner by their audiences, buying their film rights to five of his most famous films, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rear Window, Rope, The Trouble with Harry, and Vertigo, so they could not be screened in movie theaters for after their initial run. Subsequently, they were not seen by a cinema audience for 30 years. So that's oh, why wow. that happened. So he he only wanted people seeing them in like the proper context. Exactly. Not, oh, like, so yeah. I didn't know that was coming from him. Yeah, so apparently that's sort of why like he knew that when they were in their initial theatrical run he could make sure that they were seen in certain ways and then yeah after that... uh, rope is brilliant rope rope is probably one of his movies that i highly recommend you see yeah it's, it's... it's got such artistry and, and unique kind of style to it it's and, like ahead of its time and we see there we see here that this is like this is like the good side of sort of this need for control is he's not willing to put his movies out unless they're like he can guarantee they're com- like being seen in the proper way so this yeah. is like Okay, that's probably part of why he was such a good director is his control. But we're also seeing sort of the dark side of this control. And they're okay. you know, both part of the same guy. And this darkness that I, I keep talking to, we've seen bits of it in the pranks he plays, but it becomes really, really clear when he starts dealing with his leading women, and one leading woman in particular. Oh, um, right. And that's what we're going to start talking about. But first, we're going to talk about... Ads. I almost said it, but then yeah. I was like... no. Uh, products, products and services, uh, like the fine products and services that support this show and or program. <laughs> 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
We're back, and we're providing a free plug for the late 1980s G.I. Joe aircraft carrier toy. Oh, wow. Great toy. Yeah, and no kid owned it. Mm -hmm. It was like 10 feet long. Yeah, it was way too big for a toy. Can you imagine, like, your dad brings that home? It's like, (sighs) what what stupid kid got that? That was like two Christmases. Yeah. At least. And you immediately hated that kid. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I don't know why we're so into 80s ads right now, but if you make large G.I. Joe aircraft carriers uh, and want to... Or you make real aircraft carriers and you want to advertise on the show. We have a lot of small nations building navies as listeners on this show. Mozambique could use a navy. They just sold theirs to Eric Prince. So I think we have a lot of Mozambique. And I'm uh, that just Eric move Prince on episode here. was great. Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So if if you if you if you sell navies, advertise on our show, and maybe we can sell a navy to the next eric prince together yeah that yeah. sounds like a goal yeah that sounds like a nice thing so back into hitchcock uh hitchcock became infamous as his career really took off in the late 50s for writing his actors and actresses hard this was not always a bad thing i found a telling quote from grace kelly in 1979 mr hitchcock is often reputed to hold actors in disdain but he actually has a special way with them and is able to get exactly what he wants in the way of a performance his inimitable humor puts them at ease while his enduring patience gives them any confidence they may need of course, sometimes he merely wears them down until he gets what he wants. Eesh. So, she's being very grateful there, but you can see, like, he has a couple of ways of yeah. working with you. And well, she was probably less fucked with than others. Exactly, because yeah. she was like Room, the guy who put a smoke bomb on Hitchcock's car. She pushed back. Right. You know, she was right. very established by the time she started working with him. Oh, Gra- yeah, Grace, she was. Grace Kelly was not some new starlet who starts working with no. this young director. Well, like, because, like, he discovered a few. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, above all else, Hitchcock was obsessed with a quest to create the perfect actress, someone who could ideally embody the specific kinds of heroine that he wanted to write. Grace Kelly was one candidate for the role. Ingrid Bergman was another. Hitchcock fell in love with Ingrid Bergman and with Grace Kelly. Uh, neither reciprocated. Spellbound. Um, excellent movie. Yeah. And, and Ingrid Bergman, great actress. Uh, she did not reciprocate in Hitchcock's falling in love with her. So Alfred started telling all of their colleagues a story that after a dinner party, the famously beautiful starlet had cornered this elderly, obese director in his bedroom and refused to leave until he fucked her. Oh, my God. He starts telling this to other people in the industry and spreading this rumor. Now, I think most people probably figured out it was a lie because Alfred Hitchcock had all of the game of a stale sandwich. Uh, (laughs) But he repeatedly insisted that it was the God's honest truth to anyone who would listen. Bergman took it in stride. Quote, I never got angry when it came back to me. People will believe what they want to believe. I loved him, but not in his way. So she handles it very classily. And both both Grace Kelly and Ingrid Bergman spoke fondly of Hitchcock, Hitchcock and seemed to re- believe that his genius outweighed his more odious qualities, hmm. right? Well, B- Bergman was also like, she she worked very well with directors. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. she and, and Rosalini. And again, she was established by the time she yeah, did Yeah, yeah, right. He definitely right. helped her career, but she she was on a pretty solid track by she the was. time they started working. She was also she was pretty big in Europe before she got to yeah, America. Yeah. So these were and again, these were established women. These were confident women. These were people who knew their place in the industry and who knew how to like had their own relationships with they, other people in they the They were unhitchcockable. They were unhitchcockable. Yeah. Unhitchcockable. Exactly. Which Alfred would have made that into a different kind of pun, but we're not going to do that. Uh, <clears throat> now, uh, both w- actresses— Women he couldn't fuck. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and he couldn't fuck with because they would push back, like Room pushed back. And that's the thing. If you push back at Hitchcock, he'll stop because he doesn't like getting pushed at. Right. Classic um, bully status. Exactly. Both actresses maintained good boundaries with the director and eventually moved on from him to the rest of their lives. Hitchcock remained obsessed with the idea of finding and molding the perfect leading lady. 
What Hitch wanted, what he craved, was a young woman to act as his blank slate, someone without a career separate from him and his genius, someone he could craft and control. This was not a benign desire, and in fact it seems to have been inextricably tied with a great deal of anger Hitchcock felt towards the female gender. For example, Hitchcock had a couple of quotes he was fond of dropping during interviews at this time. I always believe that in following the advice of the playwright Sardot, he said, torture the woman. The trouble today is we don't torture women enough. What? Yeah. Hitchcock. That's the trouble with today? <laughs> that's, that's the trouble with today? <laughs> you know, the problem with today is not enough not women, enough are, women are tortured. Too yeah. much, too easy for them out yeah, there. Yeah, they made it too easy. They're all happy and, and doing well. Yeah. That's not good. That's not going to be good for art. <laughs> he was also fond of paraphrasing Oscar Wilde and saying, you destroy the thing you love. This was particularly quoted by Hitchcock in reference to his female leads. Uh, there's a guy to quote. There's there's a guy to quote, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, he, you know, he was all right. He was he was he seemed like a well-balanced fellow. <laughs> Hitchcock and his wife were professional collaborators for their entire lives together, uh, or for their entire relationship, pretty much. Her editorial skill was a big part of his success, and in fact, she essentially gave up her own shot at a great independent career in order to embiggen his. Their relationship was a long one, but it seems to have been almost entirely celibate. Hitchcock regularly claimed that his daughter Patricia's conception was the only time he actually had intercourse since he was too obese to enjoy sex. Robert Boyle, one of his art directors, recalled, He once said to me, I have all the feelings of everyone encased in an armor of fat. He felt he was not attractive physically but had all those same yearnings and was frustrated by what he perceived as a difficulty, if not an impossibility, which was to experience requited love. Why, why didn't he just lose weight? I mean, like health in the 60s was even oh, more butter. Okay, and, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's ra- true. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I but he, you he feel come, for the guy. I mean, he comes from England yeah. where it probably wasn't as like stigmatized. Know, stigmatized I mean, as it was in America. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I think you're right. I think around that time Americans started thinking about it. Yeah, but it was still like very the idea of health like we really didn't know much about how to it didn't come along in probably till the late 70s. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why there's that joke in Anchorman where he talks about, like, jogging as if it's this weird thing. Because people really <laughs> didn't, like, the idea that you would just go run. Like That's that, a funny joke. That, that is a funny joke, but it was, like, also a real thing. Like, right, that was, right. People had to be like, no, actually, this stops us from dying as soon. <laughs> All this bacon's killing right. our hearts. <laughs> there, there's, a, um, there's, like, an Altman movie not seen called Health where oh. it, it made fun of health, health-conscious people. Oh, wow. Showed them as, like, fanatics. Well, and that's why you even get a little bit of that in Donald Trump, because he believes that, like, exercising is bad for you, and your body only has so much energy over the course of your life, and you're oh, just wasting God. it by... And he, like, it's one of those things, like, you get raised in that sort of time before it's common. Yeah, You always yeah. think it's weird, if you don't trust doctors. Um, <laughs> so, for years, Hitchcock replaced sex with the joy he got from torturing women who starred in his movies, or at least that's one way to look at things. In 1935, while filming The 29 Steps, uh, Hitchcock- 39 Steps. 39 Steps, sorry. That's okay. My mistyping. This is why you're here. This is why I'm here, yeah. Yeah. Hitchcock handcuffed Madeline Carroll to her co-star with cuffs that were purposely tight enough to cause her pain. He claimed he'd lost the key, forcing them to stay that way for hours. He also had Carroll repeatedly dragged across the ground, probably more than was really necessary to get the shots he needed for the film. Wow. During now filming, I can't watch it the same way. <laughs> yeah, during filming, he called the lead actress the Birmingham Tart and said during an interview after the movie, nothing pleases me more than to knock the lady likeness out of them. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that's a good film too, but... Yeah, I mean, he never made... I mean, he made good films. Yeah. Yeah. In 1960, while filming Psycho, he forced Janet Lee to spend six straight days standing in the shower underwater for hours at a time, presumably because he thought that was necessary to get a truly believable performance out of her. Um, shower acting. Yeah, shower acting. And I mean, it's a great scene. To this day, Lee refuses to take showers, only using baths, because she's... She's still alive? 
I think so. At least she was when I read this thing. Okay, I okay. mean, she may have died since. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think she might still be alive, though. Maybe. Uh, Tippi Hedren's still alive. Which yeah. We'll talk about yeah. her in a little bit. Yeah. Sophie's doing the okay, cutthroat good. symbol. Yeah, when, so when, when, when did she like kick more... off? 2004. Oh, 2004. Jesus. Well, oh, up until we the off? end of her life. <laughs> yeah. She, well, uh, I mean, it's because like, nowadays you hear about it everywhere. Yeah. And back then you probably didn't. So. 2004. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we were invading a couple of places at that point. Right. Probably got kicked to the back burner. So by 1961, Alfred Hitchcock had a well-established reputation of being particularly brutal to his female characters and sometimes the actresses who portrayed them. This would all reach a boiling point when Alfred finally met the perfect focus for his dream of creating the perfect actress, a 32-year-old model named Tippi Hedren. Hmm. And that's what we're going to talk about in part two. You know who uh, she's the mom of, right? Tippi Hedren? Yeah. No. Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith. Okay, yep. cool. She was also in the movie where everybody got attacked by lions. I love which, that movie. Which this will tie into. Oh, yeah. That yeah. movie is amazing. It is incredible. Yeah, you I, saw it? I, I've seen parts of it, yeah. Oh, yeah, God. Yeah. It, it, I, I, so I, tense, that movie. Yeah, it's- uh, Well, it's, like 30 lions attacking a well, family. Well, there were, there were like 100-something serious injuries during the filming of I know. It. It's great. It's well, great. she got her face torn up. Yeah, Melanie every, Griffith. Yeah, yeah, they needed major reconstructive surgery. Yeah, yeah. Great movie. Great movie. Great movie. Absolutely entertaining. We're going to hear about something that happened to Tippi Hedren that's worse than filming the movie where a hundred people got I think a, I know it. horribly injured by big cats. Oh, it's bad. And uh, but that that comes next week. So before we kick off and and come back on Thursday, you want to plug your pluggables, Abed? Sure. Uh, I have uh, a podcast on Starburn's audio network called Gone Riffin with Rich Fulcher, and we're every Wednesday. You can find us wherever you find podcasts. Podcasts. That's right. It's not like there's no theme. Yeah. Uh, he gets mad when I talk about movies. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, but his anger is funny. Yeah. Anger yeah. anger is almost always funny. Hitchcock taught us that. Exactly. Which is why you should always chain your friends up and feed them dangerous doses of laxatives. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. nothing more fun. Nothing watching more fun them than shit. that. Oh, my yeah, God. All over the place. What a good time. A now riot. we have cameras. You can... Uh, Get anyway, all the angles. Get all the angles. Really get like a good look at this person just breaking. Kind of like the Matrix, On the right? inside. Yeah. It's like the spinning. <laughs> the best pranks are almost indistinguishable from the things done in Bashar al-Assad's prison cells. That's, <laughs> I've always said that. Yeah. I'm Robert Evans. This has been Behind the Bastards. You can find me on Twitter at I Write Okay. I have a book called A Brief History of Ice where I experiment on myself with dangerous drugs and send one of my friends to the hospital. So really? Check that out. Oh, it's a hoot. Uh, that did, sounds interesting. It, thank you. It is interesting. I, I did that once with that drug, Salvia. Oh, God. Where I let people film me while I was on it. Oh, that sounds like a bad idea, It man. was a very bad idea. That sounds like a bad idea. Well, anyway, that's a whole other story. I mean, I've got a great video of me doing the same. It's it's great. I, I love it when people take drugs on cameras. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. It's well, one friend, he freaked out and ran down the street screaming. Did you get it on camera? I don't think so. Oh, man. We did get him before he screamed. Okay. Well, that's yeah. probably good. I'm a I'm a big believer that we should do that to presidential candidates. Instead oh, that of having would be a debate. A which is we've given you both acid and now you're <laughs> gonna sit under cameras while it comes up and we're all just gonna pick you apart as human beings. That, you know, that sounds like an awesome futuristic movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be a great way to run press. Like running man. Anyway, we have t shirts, phone cases, we sell prefabricated bunkers for waiting out the apocalypse, uh branded bunkers. Neat. Uh, all on tpublic.com behind the bastards. Sophie, you were signaling something, that drink mugs? We have drink mugs. We have mugs that you can put drinks in, in your bunker that you also buy from us. So check all that out, Behind the Bastards, Tee Public. 
We're on Twitter and Instagram at @bastardspod. We have a website behindthebastards.com with all the sources for this. And that's all I'm going to say until we say part two, which is going to come out on Thursday for you. But we're going to record right now. Ah! Ah! Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.